0: Hi, it's Niall here. Just wanted to make a quick request before today's episode. The Weekend University's mission is to make the best minds and ideas in psychology more accessible so that you can use the knowledge to improve your quality of life. We release pretty much all of our content for free and don't run any ads during the show. That said, we'd love to expand our reach and get the knowledge shared by our speakers into the hands of more people so that they can benefit too. So if you're in the mood for doing a random act of kindness today, and helping others to improve their lives in the process it would make a huge difference if you could take just 30 seconds and leave a short review on your favourite podcast provider whether that's iTunes, Stitcher or Spotify In addition, we'll pick one review each month and that person will get a free ticket to your monthly online conference which usually costs around £50 Thank you for your time and I hope you enjoy the show
1: Thanks now. Okay, so very nice to be with whoever you are. It's very, it's a, as I was saying to now before, it's slightly strange not being able to see anybody and not seeing any reaction in anybody's faces or even know if you're looking or eating your breakfast or whatever. But anyway, a big welcome. It's very impressive that so many people have, are turning out on a Sunday morning so near Christmas. So I'm re- revisiting this talk, themes that I've been thinking about for a long time, and many of which came out in a book called *The Good Life*, which was a few years old now. And but I think actually the themes are more relevant than ever. I start with this quote, which is a um, theory. I think it anyway, wherever I got it from, it said it was the Buddha who who said it. In separateness lies the world's great misery, and in compassion lies the world's true strength. And it's one of the One of the key um, themes of of my talk is going to be the importance of connection and connection and interconnection, which gives rise to more likelihood of altruism as opposed to individualism. And we'll we'll think about that. But here's a few seconds of a little of, of some babies. Now. I'm guessing that if you're watching this I can't see any of your faces that you might be going gooey and broody you might not you might think it's all sentimental but what is it that gives rise to these little little babies with the capacity to reach out to the other to comfort to receive and give comfort etc and it's I think the field of psychotherapy is like so many fields in human nature given this is a day on human nature is riven with splits with tribalism with and I think one of the kind of historical splits has been that psychoanalysis has historically been seen as focusing a lot on the negative on aggression on destructiveness etc and I think possibly the the transpersonal humanistic therapist and again I have no idea I mean maybe somebody can do a poll while we're (laughs) mid-flow um see what kind of therapists we've got here but transpersonal humanistic therapists, possibly, certainly the way I was trained initially, I was trained initially as an integrative humanistic therapist and then trained in as a psychiatric therapist and I really try to integrate them, but maybe those traditions are, can be a little bit too positive, maybe too nicey-nicey, maybe fearful of what Al, what alvaro is called staring evil in the eye, and I think that we live in a world in which possibly we've been hoodwinked by a primarily neoliberal possibly capitalist and, a, and certainly a false Darwinist, not a real Darwinist view of human nature, which suggests that we're primarily selfish. And so, of course, Richard Dawkins in The Selfish Gene wrote, if you wish, as I do, to build a society in which individuals cooperate generously and unselfishly towards a common good, you can expect little help from, human na- from biological nature. Let us try to teach generosity and altruism because we are born selfish. I actually think he's completely wrong, not completely wrong, but in many ways wrong. And I'll try to say why. Although we can teach compassion and altruism, and there's lots of very interesting evidence research out there. This slightly more pithy quote, scratching an altruist and watch a hypocrite bleed. Again, it's easy to like quotes like that. They're kind of slightly funny, but actually, again, I think they own they they I think that they're only a part of the truth. So what is it that gives rise to things like like this, you probably remember this from a few years ago. So as you see, there's a baby there at the top. There it goes. Now, I'd ask for a round of applause if we were actually in the room together, but what drives that kind of thing, and there might be all kinds of things, it might be the glory, but there's something that drives humans to look after and care for and reach out to others in trouble, and I suspect, again, I'm not sure if this poll will be done, but I suspect most people here are therapists, and are are get drawn to helping others and we might want to think about why that is. Even in toddlers, and I'll show you more of this a bit later on, but here is a very classic example of a toddler being helped. It's a strawberry. See the strawberry. He oh. pretends to drop it, and the little kid picks it up to be helpful. So what drives those things? and How come we're capable of that, and capable of extreme, amazing selfless al- altruism, but also, we're capable of psychopathy, we're capable of, you know, so um, callous unemotional, psychopathic um, activity. And I tend to think of psychopathy as on a spectrum and we all have a bit of it, but people are, well, we all know, I work a lot with forensic cases these days with perpetrators and I've worked in the past with many traumatized people. And I do know, do see the goodness it often gets kind of, dri- never quite developed or gets dri- pushed out of them and often this changes through therapy. I don't see many psychopaths in therapy because they don't come unless they're trying to kind of trick the prisons or something, because you have to be motivated to change. Um, but this group are very hard to change and they can do the most horrendous things. And people, have, if you've read think, people like Bob Hare or John Ronson's book or, or read about people like Ted Bundy, there's a great film about Ted Bundy, one of the most notorious psychopaths. They're capable of doing extraordinary, what you could only call it evil really. And so why is that? How come this is the same species that are capable of doing all of these things? Um, this, often, we often see in them a kind of cold aggression. So they will often use aggression in cold, calculated, targeted ways. Sometimes they can read minds incredibly well, but this is not empathy. This is much more, I'm going to work out what they're thinking, feeling, so I can manipulate them. So some of the kids who are aggressive in this way, sometimes called happy victimizers. And like people who have reactive aggression, which I'll mention in passing in a moment, um, you know, when somebody sort of hits you or says something, we react. This kind of cold aggression is much more scary. It's the sort of thing that can make your, um, if I had hair, make the hair on the back of your neck um, stand up. It can make you feel a bit cold to be in the presence of some of these these people. And of course, there's degrees of psychopathy, and we might want to think about, it. Bob Hare, in fact, I think, said, that if I, am um, slight digression, if I digress too much, I, I hope Niall will, will butt in and tell me to stop, otherwise, I won't get through. But um, Bob Hare said that actually, um, the majority of psychopaths, that there's more psychopaths in certain professions, and you won't be surprised that heads of large corporations, um, in, the, in Special Armed Forces, some politicians you might think of and actually surgeons as well and probably we all would like a surgeon who isn't too kind of who who can work under huge pressure and isn't going to be too empathic and worry about blood and stuff like that but cold aggression is worrying and it's not it is part of human nature as as opposed to kind of reactive aggression so if if, if i often work with kids and, and they lash out and often the ones that lash out actually they're more hopeful because they've got an idea that things shouldn't be like this I tend to think of of these forms of aggression, I'm not gonna spend much time on this thing, as central aspects of human nature. So you might think about, um, say, the cat snarling when somebody, when threatened, as opposed to the cat when it's hunting for a bird. And we all have both of these capacities, but they can be out of balance in some people. So what I'm interested in is thinking about different kinds of altruism, and I'll be thinking more after the break about why um, what might turn on or turn off altruistic capacities. I'm, I'm going to be thinking particularly in this bit about what Daniel Batson, who I think is a really, really good researcher in this field, has, taught, has called empathically induced altruism, that wish to help people help other people who are in need as of genuine concern and for, the, for their well-being. So in, in empathically induced altruism, obviously you experience empathy. And you help others regardless of gains for ourselves. So that guy who's climbing in France, climbing, saving that baby, he might have been doing it because he couldn't help himself. And it's, we might think something similar of firefighters and um, people rescuing people who are drowning, but sometimes there might be ulterior motives. But Batson's done brilliant work showing, showing, and I can only, I can only refer you to the book how there is this thing called empathically induced, empathically induced altruism. Um, and there are different kinds of altruism, which I'm going to mention briefly now in passing. So there's reciprocal altruism, which is what most evolutionary thought had suggested exists, primarily. So most uh, historically, a lot of evolutionary thinking hasn't really believed very much in um, what Batson calls um, empathically induced altruism. So this is more, I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch if you'll scratch mine. It's the sort of thing. So I was thinking um, a couple of years ago, my friend of mine moved into a house and a friend of mine was in a house and then new neighbors moved in two doors up and they thought they'd take a very a, a bottle of wine round to wish them hello it's the sort of thing you do with your neighbors you swap keys and you help each other out but actually it's a reciprocal process it's not because you love them or anything like that and interestingly on that occasion um my friend came back and said they're only staying a few months I wish I hadn't got such a nice bottle of wine so that wasn't genuine open-hearted altruism that was more reciprocal altruism if you like Um, There's other kinds of altruism, which I think many of us in this room might be, um, might can sometimes have too much of, which is what you often see in ambivalent, anxious ambivalent attachment when you really have to. um... So one of my theories, which again, I won't go into today, is that many therapists got their main training in their families of origin when they were very young and had to look after parents who were a bit fragile. And so you might see a kind of compulsive caregiving if you like. And that, and so I'm looking after you, not because I really care from the bottom of my heart, because actually my life would be much better if you were OK. So it's a different kind of thing. So I'm just going through a few different kinds of altruism. A, a related kind is when you can't bear somebody's distress and you're upset about something. So I'll let you have whatever you want in order to shut you up. That's because I can't bear your distress. That's not because I really care. So it's a different kind of altruism, right? Um, then there's the kind of doing the right thing for kind of moral reasons. And again, I'm not primarily focusing on this today, but it exists and this is a great, actually bit of research by, um, I can't remember her name, is it Mary, B- Gregory Bateson's daughter, who's in the, was at least in the University of Newcastle and she did this great research on, so I'm sure everybody in this, I'm talking about you, you're trying to convince myself that we're in a room together, which is what I would love. So I'm sure everybody here wants, I don't know lived in communal houses or was it university or college or whatever and there was never enough money in the kitty and so what she did is she put um whatever the kitty thing was where you put the money on a shelf and above the shelf for one week or two weeks she put a picture of beautiful flowers and for the next week she put pictures of two eyes and the type the period when there was just the pitch of two eyes in other words conscience guilt superego psychoanalysts would say much more money I think probably three or four times more money went into the went into the kitty so we we all have this this expectation that we're being looked at and doing the right thing because we're being looked at again it doesn't necessarily come from empathy it comes from following rules and um, a fear of being disapproved of and a fear of punishment which is a big driver but it's not the altruism that I think is the most important form of altruism. It did, just to go over some of the research, they did some great studies um, where, for example, they got, they, they got people to do a test in which it was possible to cheat. And some of the people being tested were told to read the Ten Commandments just before, and others were told to read just a passage from a random book. And those who read the Ten Commandments were much, much less likely to cheat. So this is the kind of technique that people are using in things like priming, which governments use, for example, which is kind of nudging us unconsciously to do certain things. Again, you might think whether that's altruism or not, whether that's real, and it's all part of the human moral fabric, but it's not quite what I'm talking about today. of course, we do also get rewards from helping people. The neuroscience is clear. When we do something that we feel good about, like helping a stranger, all kinds of reward circuits this is this is old research, there's much more new research. All kinds of reward circuits fire up in our brains. Um, we reward, certain areas of the brain involved in reward circuitry light up when we see um, video game players rewarded for high scores by sit and see their money going to charity, which is the same parts of the brain that fires up when we see others winning at the game. So when the money goes to charity, we we get a reward. We feel good when good things are happening in the world. So again, but you might think, well, that's an ulterior motive. That's a that's not. Um, so there is lots of this research which suggests um, that we that the reward circuits that fire. This is the same stuff as the previous slide. Um, so our reward circuits fire when we do good things, but. One of the interesting things that Batson found in his empathically induced altruism research is that even when there's, n- that people do this without any reward, including the including the kind of um, the reward, the brain rewards that we just saw. So here, this is just to make you goo again. This is a little girl and her sister. Okay.
2: Polly oh. yes. oh. can imagine herself in her sister's position. She understands that Geraldine is upset, even though she can't feel her pain. And she knows that she can
1: make her feel better. So that gives us a bit of hope in human nature. This is very different to the psychopaths, the Ted Bundys of this world, or... And after the break, what I'm gonna come to is thinking more about how the kind of parenting we receive and the kind of culture and society and context in which we live really shifts our capacities for altruism or not. So what do we need in order to be altruistic in the way that I'm describing? We need some understanding of our own and other people's minds. So we need this, some capacity for autobiographical memory, for empathy. We need to be able to defer gratification. So I'm putting aside my needs for a moment to help you, which means some form of self-regulation. These are all frontal lobe capacities. Well, not only, but you know, the, the, the prefrontal cortex areas within the, within the prefrontal cortex are central to all these things. Um, those are the brain regions that are particularly helped by Good parenting and good psychotherapy of course and things like mindfulness linked with things like executive functions and they tend to develop together in good experiences in good relationships and these are things that get turned off by stress and trauma so a lot of this stuff has deep evolutionary roots so and there's a book that's critiquing a little bit of this that's just come out. But but I, I think very few would argue that a lot of our evolutionary, a lot of our evolution took place in small hunter-gatherer groups where we lived um, small bands, where it was really important that we trusted each other, that we relied on each other, that we worked together, that we weren't too selfish. Um, it's a guy called Christopher Bowhead. Bohem, I think B-O-H-E-M-E, who's written a lot about this stuff and pulled together hundreds, if not more, of anthropological studies, finding that just about all of the cultures studied, they were very um, close knit and loyalty and being good to other people in the group were really, really, really central for survival. And of course, if you're living in a small hunter-gatherer group and you get expelled from the group, ostracism. Then you know that could well give rise to death. So you can see how um, why it was, why it's always historically been really important in the, in our evolutionary past. What Bowlby would call our environment of evolutionary adaptiveness, that EEA. Why it was be so important to um, be trustworthy, to be reasonably generous, to be thinking of other people, not putting yourself to first. It wasn't a, that wasn't a world in which rampant individualism could survive. And this could happen through all kinds of techniques. Through kind of moral censoring through um, shame, shame, shaming, which we actually get has a very bad press in psychotherapy. It's a really central way. So kind of like light teasing when people went out of line that some of us know from our childhood or even from our adult life can be quite enjoyable as well, but was really not a kind of shame for who you are at the depth of your being but a bit of light shaming or even sometimes a bit heavier shaming making people feel bad about what they do is a central central trait but it's all about um, facilitating close bonds which enable, in- aided survival and thriving of such small small communities and what we know is that people can be then very very dramatically punished when things go wrong and that's still a big trait we see it all the time we see it in the news all the time. Um, this is a, a few moments of um, after the Second World War, where French women who had sex relationships with Nazis were had their heads shaven and were shamed publicly.
2: Who sit outside their cafes watching the Allied armor roll by on the road to Paris?
1: Maybe this isn't the bit. <laughs>
2: French flags from London rooftops. First electrifying news that Paris is about to fall numbs everyone by the speed of its sudden announcement. Though a big question mark hangs over Paris, the victory bells of St. Paul's Cathedral chime out. The eagerly awaited news of Paris's liberation is in everyone's mind. Cautiously awaiting developments, undemonstrative Londoners
1: reserve their energy for final victory. Oh, well. Um, The bit with the shaved heads isn't there, but we know that it happens. We know it happens in all cultures and we know how much shaming goes on. And we know that people don't speak like that on the BBC anymore. Um, So here's another clip from a TV programme, and I can't remember it, and I should reference it, especially if this is on video and uh, being recorded. Elegates!
0: Chocolate!
3: Um, uh, Chocolate
1: And the stilts?
0: Can you share the chocolate?
4: What do you think Skylar?
1: Does she want to share her chocolate? Does any of us want to share our chocolate?
0: You can have more than us. I'll just eat it before it melts. So,
2: it's good to share Skylar!
1: Yeah! Classic hunter-gatherer group pressure.
2: I don't think that's enough
1: for everybody. Are you sure? Because how many children do we have Skylar?
0: One, two, three, four, five. How many bits? Two, three, four, five. Yay!
3: <laughs> Yay! We have one each, okay?
4: What are we going to do, Skylar? Do I
2: have okay. to? we
4: We've got five children. Yeah.
3: But...
2: But what? It is mine.
0: Share, <laughs> yeah, otherwise we won't give things to you. We won't share things to you. If she doesn't share her things. I
1: love this moment of moral dilemma.
0: Things? Uh, uh,
4: I, I'm going to you guys have it. I'm going to let you have a think about it, Scarlett. you got to stay there, though, and decide what you're going to do. You can have this one, and I'll get
3: home.
1: Actually, she's feeling better giving, isn't she?
2: Uh, no, no! Please get that back!
3: Oh, it's a big, nasty boy's run off with her, her one piece of chocolate. <laughs> yes, chocolate
1: pack! Oh, good. Chocolate. This is where she gets the payout for pausing and thinking and beginning to share. She has got a little social network now to fall back on, and that's a very important reward.
0: Don't worry, colour Sharing is caring. Hey. What do you need? I asked. You didn't. I did. Oh, please. did. I'm not going to share chocolate with you ever again.
1: He's been shamed.
0: Oh, really? Right, come on then. Let's play.
1: You can have that piece. He's in the in-group there now. Good
2: girl for chair.
3: Here you go. Oh.
2: It's
3: the
4: wrong way round.
1: Skylar. So here you see an example of, maybe Melanie Klein was right, this is reparation.
3: I am sorry
0: for science. And then I found a rabbit, That's a bunny rabbit. Why? Why is your bunny? Because it's your favourite animal.
1: Ah, almost touching. But anyway, I think that almost demonstrates more than any anthropological anthropology book that you could read about these things. So we 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 were we were reared as this kind of um, group species, what Sarah Herdy calls actually um, co- a cooperative breeding species, which is maybe not very flattering. But what that means is that unlike any other primate, we rear our kids in groups. So unlike chimpanzees whose babies are stuck to their mothers only we pass babies around in groups if they're safe groups and from about a year nine months to a year we really have to work out as infants and kids and toddlers who's safe who isn't safe what's she thinking what's he's thinking and Dunbar's number this idea that actually we, we evolved to live in, in groups where in which we didn't have any more than 150 people I'm not sure how many people you've got on in your Instagram feeds but um really and raised and evolved in small, in small groups where we but bigger, but bigger groups than big enough that we had to develop big brains. And this is a lot of the theories around brain development suggest that actually it was becoming bipeds. Also um, our brains developed hugely in order to make sense of other people's thoughts and feelings. So you had to develop theory of mind, empathy, fitting into the group, although also, as well as being deceptive, of course, things like teasing, which you know, we can do teasing at three or four months old. I can give you an example later on ostracism you know, being ostracized is one of the most painful things that we, as we saw in that clip in fact it, it, it fires similar brain circuitry to when you feel physical pain so it's really important that we learn to fit in and there's lots of evolutionary science I won't go into it in too much detail but um, lots of evolutionary science loads of evolutionary games that they call them so for example if I was to ask any of you guys okay I can give you 30 quid or nothing what would you prefer? Nearly everybody would say 30 quid. But Then you have these evolutionary games where, I, where I, I say, okay, Niall, I'm giving you 100 quid and you can give me whatever you would like to, and then we'll decide whether I'll decide whether to accept it or not. And they've done these kinds of games in every, all kinds of societies, in all kinds of cultures, large amounts of money, a whole year's income, small amounts of money, um, bits of grain, whatever. And just about every culture, people turn down offer if it's too low. So we have a fundamental sense of what's fair. So if Niall was to offer me 20 quid, I'd say, bog off Nile. So I should be better off with 20 quid than nothing, but actually I value fairness more than 20 quid. If you give me 40 quid, probably 45 quid, definitely. 50 quid, yep, I'm delighted. So that it seems to be the case in just about every society that's been studied. So, and there, there is some capacity for cooperation in, in non-human primates so here in on the spoils
2: virgil is struggling he doesn't have his friend's skill
1: basically they're going to share
2: and vulcan
1: is getting impatient I won't go to, I won't leave, I, move on because, but there's plenty of examples of rats and primates, other monkeys, etc, chimpanzees, apes, um, sharing and helping each other, but it's a different, it's different level of altruism. And we do have this moral sense, which might well come from our early evolutionary history. And it starts really early. So this is work from the research. I mean, Paul Bloom popularized this, but this was work by people like Kylie Hamlin, where they showed these very early moral capacities or moral insights or moral drives, I think, in, in infants.
2: By trying to get up a hill. Sometimes the red circle is helped up the hill by a blue square. And when it reaches the top, it dances with joy. Then the infants see the circle try to get up the hill again, only this time there's a new player. When the circle works its way up, the triangle bumps it back down. The researchers then test how these nine-month-old infants interpret what they've just seen.
3: An experimenter who did not see um, which character was which brings over the two characters to the babies and just sees
2: which character the baby touches first.
4: Which one do you want?
2: We found that impressively actually almost 100% of babies in
1: a number of different uh, studies preferred the more positive character. So. Babies prefer good people, people who do good things. And they change the colors. They change the experimenter. The experimenter didn't know which one was the good which one was the good in the bad, etc. And they've even found this at three months old. Addison is just three months old. In another experiment, she watches Stripe Puppet play ball with
0: Green Shirt Puppet. When they're done, Green Shirt returns the ball. But when Stripe Puppet plays with Red Shirt, Red just takes the ball. After the show, Addison spends more time paying attention to the good puppet.
2: We weren't necessarily expecting to find as strong of responses as we have found at such young ages.
1: So, at three months, they prefer, they'd like, they want to be with the one who did the good thing, but it's got its limits because this moral sense also has a capacity for punishing and not liking people who do bad things.
2: And this starts really, really young. So this is, so look at this. Wesley watches as the puppet in the center struggles to open up a box with a toy inside. The puppy in the yellow shirt comes over and lends a hand. Then the scene repeats itself, but this time the puppy in the blue shirt comes and slams the box shut. Nice behavior, mean behavior, at least to our eyes. But is that how a five-month-old sees it? And does he have a preference? Wesley, do you remember these guys from the show? To find out, a researcher who doesn't know which puppet was nice and which was mean offers Wesley a choice. Who do you like? He can't answer, but he can reach. That one. Wesley chose the good guy, and he wasn't alone.
3: That one. Again,
2: they choose the good one, theoretically the good one, Then look at this, which is the same scenario. They showed babies like James here, a puppet behaving badly. Instead of rolling the ball back to the puppet in the middle, this green-shirted bunny keeps the other puppet's ball and runs away. So the green-shirt one is now back. Then James is shown a second show. This time, the bunny, who we just saw steal the ball, tries to open up the box to get the toy. Will James still prefer the puppet who helps out? or will he now prefer the one who slams the box shut? Who do you like? He chose the one who slammed it shut, as did 81% of babies tested. So I just think that's mind blowing. So what you're seeing here is that, if you understood it,
1: is that actually in the same scenario, first time round we prefer the one who's nice and open the box. In the second scenario, the person who's trying to open the box had done a bad thing And even the babies want to punish that person and don't want don't and prefer the person who slammed it shut. So we've got this kind of innate. I think it's very hard to argue that that isn't a kind of innate moral sense. Although I do think it can get knocked out of you, or there are big links with what happens in terms of early parenting and attachment style and the context and how safe we feel. And again, those are things I'll come to after the after the break. Before that, I just want to think about what does this mean? Because one of the things it means is that we live in a world of in-groups and out-groups. We live in a world of social media echo, cha- echo chambers. We you know, vaxxers hate the anti-vaxxers, vice versa. You know, um, if you think about what happened with Donald Trump and social media, etc., that we're living in an increasingly scary world where it's quite hard to be open, curious, and have debates. And of course, we have to feel safe to be open and curious and have a debate. Um, Let's have a look at at this little clip. We collected a group of people who
0: had two important traits. They were all women, and they were all white. We told them we were testing how well people understand stories by making them listen to one by a woman named Natasha. Your goal is to listen to the story as quickly as you can, but also still
1: understand Natasha's emotions by the end of it. So basically, they have to listen to a story, and... They can fast forward the tape if they want. It's the same story in the same voice, but some people listening have a picture of Natasha as a black woman, some people have a picture of Natasha as a white woman. And let's move on a bit
0: an average of three minutes and three seconds longer when they thought she was the same race. And that was more or less the same for both groups. They all showed more empathy to Natasha when she was part of their group.
2: And they did it without even realizing it. She's good people. And she's a lot like me.
0: Natasha wasn't an African-American mm-hmm. woman. Do you think it would have changed how you listen to the story? You
2: might assume that this person has had an upbringing that's like yours. So you kind of want to find those things in their story that you can relate to.
1: So this is really important because there is a natural tendency to like people like us, whatever that means, and to be distrustful, or fearful, or suspicious of people who aren't like us, like us. And then it's very hard to show empathy and compassion and care for people who are different. And there's so much kind of actually vile, vicious, nasty stuff out there against anti-vaxxers or people who are pro vaxxers or whatever whatever it is, and very little capacity to reach out and find any compassion or care or empathy for them. So the trans, actually all the stuff around trans work, trans stuff is really, really scary at the moment. And this stuff might be being upped by Russian bots in our social media, we just don't know. But whether you believe there's a great reset or whether you think that's a mad conspiracy theory, if you believe one, you won't like, you won't be very inclined to open up and listen to people who think the opposite. So it's a scary time at the moment, I think. And empathy and altruism can be very limited. So what we, it's got its limits. So for example, you don't want a judge to Um, give a lenient or harsh sentence depending on whether or not the person who's being tried is like them or not in the same culture, class, ethnicity, etc. You don't want them to be favoritism in the housing list so that people in my family get up the list rather than others. So there are limits to empathically induced altruism but I think that what we need to be doing as a culture and society in the world is opening up an increasing uh, field of objects or people with whom we, feel, we might feel empathy. And the world has changed very hopefully, I think in many ways. Just think what it was like to be gay 40, 50 years ago. I work at the Portman Clinic and actually I saw somebody who's now in his eighties, um, saw him privately, who was at the Portman Clinic in the 1970s and um, his ticket venture was homosexuality, which was seen as um, a psychiatric disorder. So things do change, but we've got a lot of internal work to do to open up so um and we can train you know this is this this um i speak to now before about the compassion compassionate mind um, listserv this was a bit research that was up there the other day showing the effectiveness of training people in compassion skills and it changes areas of the brain and there's lots of research showing that we can train ourselves to widen our field of compassion but it's hard emotional work and it doesn't come naturally. Here's my final clip, I think, before the break, I think. going to
2: start the experiment. What you're going to see is a bunch of pictures of different people. Your job is just to react naturally to those pictures.
3: Lasana is looking at activity in the brain areas involved in human social interaction, in particular, the medial prefrontal cortex. This comes online when we think about other people. It's less active when dealing with something inanimate, like a cup. What Lasana found is that this region has a similarly low response when we deal with certain types of other people.
2: What he sees now are stereotypical images of people from different social groups. What we see here is that this network of brain regions including medial prefrontal cortex, is less active when our participant looks at the homeless people. So what this pattern of activity suggests is a type of mental avoidance. They are not thinking about the mind of the homeless person in the same way they thought about the mind of the college students that they saw or the business people.
1: So you might see something similar in unconscious racism or uh, disdain for politicians of a particular hue or people from a different social class. Or people who, f- who support a different football team, or whatever it is, um, these the, the more empathic, altruistic parts of the brain will turn off when we when we demarcate people as in as in an out group as opposed to an in group. And the emotional work is in trying to open up our levels of compassion, and that includes us as therapists when we're working with complex cases and I won't have time to go into this now because it's very important we have a five minute coffee break, but what I've seen time and time again, and I'll see if we have time either in the questions or in the second half, it is how often when clients, patients, kids, adults, I've found come in doing pretty nasty things and with quite vicious enactments in their play or whatever, after a period of therapy in which they feel more careful, thought about and feel more at ease, relaxed in their nervous systems, that begins to shift and change in quite dramatic ways. So this has been an introduction to my take on altruism. I'll be thinking a bit in the break, after the break, about its links with, for example, attachment theory. But for now, we have five minutes for a coffee break. And I've got one question for you, which is, does coffee enhance altruism? And the answer is yes, for me, because it makes me happier and it makes me act nicer and also enhances brain cells, I think. So I suppose one of the main theses I have, I'm just gonna, I'm showing an imaginary video panel, so I'm imagining you there. You're like, um, I have no idea what gender you all are or anything, but um, anyway. So what we all know from any of us who working with people in any way or just from human life is that when there's danger, we contract, we turn in, we atomize. There's this thing called the cell danger response, which I think is a really interesting theory about the mitochondria, these organelles that that are in all of our cells, have their own DNA, et cetera. But what we know is that they're they're, they're always in biology have been taught to be the kind of powerhouse of the cell, the source of energy. But when there's a danger, which could be a toxin or a virus, dare I say, or a um, bacterial or trauma, they tend, they will then stop producing energy And stop, and they will signal danger, and communication between cells stops. We see this with bacteria. In, In the face of danger, they shut down, and we see less cooperation, less synchrony, less harmony, more polarization, more individualism, more atomization. In other words, feeling safe gives rise to the likelihood of openness towards another, and so of altruism. Actually, Porges describes this in terms of the social engagement system as well central to that, what he calls the ventral vagus system, which I know is a little bit controversial these days. So here is um, a clip of a little kid, very simple little clip.
4: There's
2: something inside.
1: Can you see what's inside the box? Can take the lid off. Is there something in there? Happy little kid boy, I think, playing, exploring put it
3: back inside the box and put the lid back
1: on the box Look at this It's very in the top right hand corner there There Then somebody they call an emoter enters. Hi Teresa.
2: I'm going to sit here and read a magazine Okay, that's Kelly Most of these clips Tell are, are
1: easily accessible camera. on YouTube by the way He's looking like you should do at strangers Kelly. Look at
2: this. That's aggravating. That's so annoying.
3: Oh, I thought it was really interesting.
2: Well, that's just your opinion. It's aggravating. Watch
1: your own feelings, guys. Yeah. Is he gonna play now? No. Too scared. Numbing down. Not in her presence quite painful to watch even those few minutes with a very happy, healthy little kid. And something about fear that closes us down, inevitably. Now, this links, I think, to the whole issue of attachment, that what has been found is that secure attachment, which we know depends on receiving attuned, empathic, co- containing attention, is likely to give rise to more altruistic and pro-social behaviours. So with security comes an ease, comes trust, openness, and desire for connection. So security attached adults are likely likely to offer and help um, and be more involved in an empathic, compassionate caregiving. This is the guy who's written most about this, Michael um, So going back to thinking about Porges' work, um, when we're feeding, again, I won't go into the controversy about Porges or not. I think basically a lot of this theory makes a lot of clinical sense and we can argue about the evolutionary truth of some of it or not um but what we know is that in any moment we are in an environment we have a nervous system and nervous system through what he calls neuroception is picking up whether it feels safe and if it does we can relax if there's danger we go into sympathetic nervous system responses if there's really serious danger we're going to shut down life-threatening responses he describes it as the dorsal vagal system but openness really in altruism is very hard to do empathically induced altruism if we're not in the green zone. So in ambivalent attachment, which is for those of you who haven't studied that much attachment theory, is of course it's the kind of more anxious, uncertain attachment style that you often see when you have a, an unpredictable parent. So ambivalent attachment is associated with more what we call hyperactivating styles, higher levels of vigilance and, vigilance and it's linked with more egoistical, ego, egotistical reasons for volunteering. So I might help people if I think other people are looking at me because I'm insecure and I want approval. I'm not really helping because I care. Incidentally, my personal theory is that many more therapists, many more of us therapists than we're we prepared to admit grew up with ambivalent attachment styles as opposed to the secure ones we'd like to think we had. But what you see in highly avoidant attachment styles is in which you see a denial of attachment needs and a kind of compulsive self-reliance. In in adults, and actually I think in kids as well, you see um, this style is associated with engaging in fewer voluntary activities, devoting less time to helping others, being less motivated by being altruistic. So something about early attachment experiences which might push us in certain directions in relation to being altruistic or not. And I think this makes a lot of sense. When we feel safe, when we feel secure, when somebody's empathizing with us, um, it's containing our anxieties, helping us make sense of things, it's helping us regulate ourselves and have good relationships and the world generally feels good then we're more open, we're more open to connection and to trust, and we, want, we expect to be reached out to, but we also can reach out to others as well. Um, and that actually in itself changes the nervous system. So this very simple bit of research found that um, parents, both fathers and mothers, who had what they call more mind-minded capacities, in other words, who could be in touch with their children's thoughts and feelings at four months, that predicted better heart rate variability at a year. And heart rate variability is linked with vagal tone. It's linked with what Porges and everybody talks about. Um, and actually um, my mindedness is also the best predictor we've got of emotional regulation, executive functioning skills, and actually of security of attachment. So these things all come together, I think quite beautifully in a way, although um, Here's another model that people often use. This was done for that book The Good Life and it's stolen from people like Porges and Pat Ogden and actually I'm never too sure about these heuristics. They're quite helpful but they also, we have to be careful they don't denote reality, they denote one way of trying to understand things. But what's true is that most of us would like to be in this window of tolerance more where uh, we have better heart rate variability Better engagement, social engagement system, where we have a deeper breathing, more relaxed, more empathy, more. And then, when danger comes around the corner, we can't afford to be empathic. You know, if you're about to be attacked by a by a lion, then you're not interested in how they're feeling that day or what, you know, what what they're thinking or if they've had a bad morning. You just got to survive. And so, when you're in survival mode, it's much harder to be open and reach out to another other people and connect. You have to contract and survive in with whatever danger responses we need to get through the next few moments. And of course, that's even more the case, if there's a kind of dorsal shutdown type of state. So a securely attached child is likely to show empathy in say a nursery, when another child cries or is in trouble. And you do not see the same thing in insecurely attached kids. And kids who are very neglected or kids who are abused, etc you just do not see the same levels of empathy or care for the other. So security, as I keep saying, breeds openness. And these qualities that people like Joan Halifax have talked about, um, she's a kind of, she has the upaya, Zen centering, and she has written a lot as other people have. Of I think, I think it's Brené Brown, actually, has popularized this idea of strong back, soft front and wild heart, which I think is a lovely way to try to lead, live our lives. If only we could, if only I could more. Um, so again, the roots of prosocial behavior as Nancy Eisenberg suggested, is in these very early experiences that people who can regulate their emotions are less likely to be distressed. If I'm more, less distressed by your emotion and I can bear it, I'm more able to reach out towards it. So if I see somebody crying, I might find it overwhelming. I might try to shut, shut them up or cross the road or hit them or if I can bear it and process it in myself, I might be able to reach out to it. So this, Eisenberg suggests, is the link between attachment, empathy, and self-regulation. And it also explains the link between antisocial personality type of problems, poor emotional regulation, selective function problems, et cetera, why so many kids who comes from back, comes, come, come from backgrounds of trauma, for example, and violence, struggle to show empathy and they struggle to self-regulate That all these things come together in a really interesting way i think in the research so this is very simple people probably know the mirror self-recognition test um here's a, an example of um of it looking for is clear evidence
2: yeah. clear signs of
1: basically this a bit of rouge on his face if he looks in the mirror and touches his own face it shows that he knows that the, the The face in the mirror
2: is his. Seeing the face in the mirror and immediately moving the hand to touch the mark.
1: This girl, how old is she?
2: She's 22 months. 22 Mm -hmm. months. Mm -hmm.
1: Once she had made eye contact, her mum Lisa put the mark on her face as instructed. but she knows straight away that she has whatever we mean by path, passes this mirror self-recognition test. So this very interesting study in Holland, about 125 kids, around the age where this is, becomes more possible, around 15, 16 months, they, underwe- they did this rouge test and some recognised themselves in the mirror and some didn't. And in all studies, not a single subject that showed concern and tried to help so but basically the kids were all presenting with, an, with another child in trouble in some way, a bit upset, but also had to do the root test. And all the kids um, who show concern and try to help were able to recognize themselves in the mirror. So there's a link between self-recognition, emotional self-recognition tonight, and the wish to help others, which I think is really fascinating. So all the non-recognizers, the others who failed the mirror self recognition test, showed a perplexed or indifferent response in the empathy test. And if, in fact, a few recognizers failed to show an empathic response. And then they did a further test and made the link between security of attachments. So they were much more likely to recognize themselves in the mirror and show empathy and compassion if they had a secure attachment style. This is the work of Bishop. I'd love to know if this has been replicated. It's so interesting. So just to, as, as as we've got a deficit dearth of football this weekend because of COVID. I suspect some people might not show that empathy, that much empathy for a French supporter whose team have just lost the game what's interesting he doesn't support the same
2: team.
3: OK.
1: okay. Now I've, no, I've got no justification showing that, except that I thought it was nice. And it does show something about being able to show empathy and regulate one's own emotions uh, and the link between those things. But um, you, one would bet that this little kid had a pretty good early life. So we mentioned early before the break, the whole, some of this research around the prefrontal cortex. And although I'm wary of brain research, which suggests this part of the brain does this and that part of the brain does that, and I do think that Lisa Feldman Barrett's work is really important in this respect. We have to think about circuitries and complexities and different parts of the brain function in different ways in different cultures. What we do know is that trauma and abuse has a profound effect on the developing brain. And particularly these parts of the brain involved in in self-regulation, in, in, in deferring gratification. And what we know is that is also linked with um security of attachment. So these things, again, come together as Nancy Eisenberg found. And the kids who are able to defer gratification, for example, in this marshmallow test that I might show you a second love, are were predicted in their adult life in their forties were doing much better in a whole range of different ways, better relationships, better careers, etc., etc. So these capacities are really, really important. So deferred gratification and altruism are linked. And I think you might say because they both entail thinking about one's minds and feelings, either your own or other people's. And they use the same brain regions that get knocked out of kilter, don't come online, they go offline more quickly when there's been stress and trauma. Now, having after that great big diatribe, let's just watch this for a few seconds. It's so delightful.
2: Marshmallow, for you. You can either wait, and I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you t- another one, so then you'll have two. I don't
1: think you ever see a better study, if you can see it enough, of self-deceptive defences. his hand doesn't, is like out of his control. If I just smell it, is that really eating it? Okay, I'll stop. But you get the idea. So those capacities are really profoundly important. They come from having had good attuned early experiences. And it's these, um, these parts of the brain that are central to emotional regulation are also central to our moral sense. And a lot of research that moral psychologists have done have been showing this stuff. So for example, you probably know the research of the runaway trolley. It's a kind of runaway sort of train, on a train track. And so, say, say you've got a, a train that's running away on a track, and in front of them, there's five workers who it's definitely gonna kill. But also, you've got a, you've got um something you can pull and you will divert the train in this direction where there's only one worker. Okay. How, uh, if you were here, if I could see you, <laughs> I would say how many of you would put your hands up, just ask yourself, how many of you would pull the trigger, you pull the lever so that the train would just kill the one worker as opposed to the five? I think probably it's a bit of a debate. Some of you would, some of you wouldn't, some of you are uncertain. Then I ask a similar question, which is got the same runaway train, same five workers, You're watching this, this time from a bridge. And next to you on the bridge is a very, very, very overweight person. And why that's important is because if you push them over the bridge, you will stop the train. So in a way, it's the same choice, one level, which is one person dies or five people die. But if I ask you, would you push him over or her over, almost none of you, I think, would do it. And probably you're feeling more anxious now than when I asked the first question. So there's something about, The parts of the brain involved in moral decisions are these prefrontal parts of the brain that are central to a link, actually, between these and areas like the amygdala, and they're central to moral decision making. And all the people who don't make those decisions would almost definitely be psychopaths or possibly people who have damaged their prefrontal cortex. And you have to wonder whether trauma, they haven't done this research with trauma victims, but whether like kids have been multiply abused. Whether or not you'd have the same effect, which is that, so a psychopath would say no, well no brainer, chuck him over the bridge, or, or um, and there's lots of lots of research which backs up these sorts of things, and I think I'll leave that here now. But for now, but the uh, but the idea is that actually. If our, if our kind of emotional parts of our brains aren't working well, and they're not linking up with bodily parts, subcortical areas, particularly areas around the amygdala, that's circuitry towards fear, etc, and emotional decision making, then we can't be quite so moral, and those things can get knocked out of kilter by bad experiences. And it's true of all of us, isn't it? So if we're stressed, Put note, some of you might know a very old experiment from the 1970s where they put a dime in a phone booth in the old days when they used to have phone booths and a dime wasn't very much money in the 70s and they had an actor outside or an actress and when the people came out of the phone booth whether there was a whether they put a dime in or not the actress dropped a sheaf of paper and you went to see whether anybody would help pick up the pick up the paper and when I think that when there was a dime in the phone booth, there was something like seven or eight times more likely to help the actress. Dime wasn't very much money, it was, but there was something about the world feeling good and enhancing generosity. And We all know that when we're feeling good, we tend to be more kind and more generous. In fact, you should have seen me this morning. I was I was on Hampstead Heath and I um and I've fallen over and a dog jumped up on me and ruined my trousers and. Um, I was rushing to get to get back because otherwise I was going to be late for Nile. And then a friend of mine waved at me, and I just said, "Sorry, I haven't got time." <laughs> so my generosity had completely disappeared because of my stress, and that's what's one of the things that stress. Stress does, of course. So when we're under threat or we're very stressed, our social engagement systems turn off, and we struggle to be empathic and altruistic. And we need to feel safe, and if possible, liked, love and appreciated to thrive and then to be open to others. So it's all about connection. And maltreatment, we absolutely know, turns these capacities off. Right back to 1985, this work by Mary Main, abused kids showed almost no empathy for other children's distress in the nursery. And in fact, could be quite nasty, give them another kicking, you know. Whereas we know that securely attached kids tend to play well and easily and more reciprocally with other kids in preschool. But there are more fights and conflicts with insecurely attached kids and that's just research bears this out time and time again so and you know having worked for decades more than i'd like to care to admit to with very traumatized kids and then adults and now those who have become perpetrators we should be not surprised we should not be surprised um, how often these kids struggle they struggle with relationships they struggle with friendships they struggle with fitting in and again, the, parts, the research is clear, the parts of the brain, people like Amy McCurry or um, Martin tyke or whoever, the parts of the brain central to emotional regulation, to empathy, et cetera, particularly these prefrontal areas are much less online after trauma and abuse. And again, it's no surprise then, is it? Prisons, psychiatric hospitals have a disproportionate number of people who have been in the care system who have suffered trauma. Um, trauma, abuse and neglect make us less trusting which is different to those who have more secure upbringings. So this is a, a kind of classic compassion mind um, three-circle model. And what we know is that we need a balance between these systems. And again, these very overly simplistic heuristics can be useful as long as we don't take them for the truth. The world doesn't, isn't actually divided into these three zones. But we, we might all think intuitively we have a kind of drive system driving towards us driving us towards things, a soothing and connection system and a threat and protection system when there's danger. And too many people are living in these 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 two systems, particularly the red zone, and we need to try to cultivate this. We need to find ways of getting back to this. Living in the green zone wouldn't be a happy, healthy, exciting life, joyful life only, but we need to know it and be able to get there and then move from there to hear where there's exciting things and to hear where there's danger. And it's about getting that balance. <laughs> So, does what we do, does psychotherapy enhance altruism? Well, we—I've seen it time and time again in my clinical practice, but I've got no research evidence. They did this research with um, an eight-week mindfulness course, where they gave some people an eight-week mindfulness course, and they gave and there was a control group. And the people had to come in to the office to do some questionnaires at the end, and in the office they put three chairs. Um, had two actors and so two actors reading the newspaper and then you had to come in the people who do the questionnaires had to come in and sit on a chair and then somebody hobbles into the room on crutches again an actor and they saw who got off the chair to give up their chair to the person on crutches they were much more likely to do so if they'd done the eight-week mindfulness course so and i suggest that actually that's what we see a lot in psychotherapy um that I see time and time again, kids, some of the nastiest people that I've worked with, really vicious and nasty uh, to start with and enjoying the pleasure of hurting other people, etc. And after several years of therapy, I'm afraid often, often something softens in them, something in their body softens. And one of the interesting things I see time and time again is that these little small acts of kindness begin to come into the therapeutic material. I remember one girl who really, really, um she beat up a girl, a boyfriend, and then her girlfriend, she, um, she was bisexual. She had all kinds of, she was absolutely dismissive of anybody showing any um, empathy or anybody crying. She couldn't understand why there were tissues in the room. What fucking idiot, you know, that kind of thing. And by the end, she had softened such a lot that she started re- reporting, going to look after her brother's kids. And she even took an old man shopping a neighbor shopping she said i hate the old git really but she but she was doing it those acts of kindness coming in when people feel safer more cared for themselves and i see it in kids play where the play starts as violent aggressive nasty everybody killing each other and by the end of a therapy often there are people helping each other supporting each other with the whatever they're using toy animals or in their drawings so what we know is empathy can and altruism can develop with the right emotional environment. This is the work of Michael Tomasello in the Max Planck Institute in Leipzig, classic altruism experiment. Oh. Hmm. Oh. What's he going to do? Warm the cockles of your heart, isn't it? So. What got me interested in this, and in fact, the whole area, this whole area was, I saw this research and I thought, blimey, almost none of the kids I work with do that. They don't show kindness to other people. And I even wrote to Michael Tomasello and said, to to Professor Tomasello, can you, has there been any research done on the impact of attachment? I didn't know about the Bishop Collar work then, I don't think it had been done um because the kids i work with don't do this they don't show empathy and compassion and care and he actually did go generously write back saying he didn't know and i'm what i'm suggesting i suppose in, in this talk is that these kids have had good enough early experiences to be able to reach out and help other people i'll show one more so... impressive given how bad the acting is now this is another slightly similar different experiment two adults psychologist and an interviewee and they're either going to mimic like, in other words bodily imitate the interviewee or they're going to anti-mimic and see the results
3: now she's rubbing a her nose,
2: nose rubbing and a hair flip mm-hmm. so it's hard to hear but you can that. see oh,
3: oh, no, scratch, no scratch. Yeah. Slow, and the flip, and oh, yeah, does yeah, the yeah, flip. Yeah.
1: yep being mimicked not only makes most of her subjects okay. feel better about the person doing the mimicking but also makes them better persons themselves
3: oh.
1: in one of the experiments for example subjects were scored by how many pens they helped pick up after being mimicked Thank
3: you.
1: in other trials the subject is purposely not mimicked so anti-mimicking, anti-mimicking.
3: People who are Anti mimicked, it's so disruptive to what the normal um, social interaction is supposed to be that we find that they have less um, self control, um, less ability to regulate their behavior on a later task. So that's where they're eating more junk food, procrastinating more, and so on. So he hasn't
1: helped much. Now, I have no idea who the audience is. My guess is it'll be more female than male. I need to tell you, it's not just because the second one was a bloke, but they did it on both genders, but it was because he was anti mimicked And the first one, there was a very clear imitation. And when somebody is following us in our bodily movements in a way which feels empathic, it makes us feel so much better and nicer. And that will then give rise to more altruism. So, And that's what you see, of course, in secure attachment. That's what you see in good attunement between a parent and a child. That's what you see in two good mates in the pub. You see a kind of mutual synchrony. which you can't see on Zoom. So one of the central themes that I'm talking about, I suppose, is synchrony and connection, and it's connection and that gives rise to cooperation and linking, which is central and gives and has to come from safeness, and that gives rise to altruism. And without that, we have atomization, splitting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, a very, very different way of being. And we know this from really, really, really early. So for example, this research shows that mothers and babies, um, they're, they're, there's a synchronization of their brain signals as they gaze at each other, presu- assuming this is a good relationship. So the neural activity of two people communicating, this is also true to adults, synchronizes. The brain activity synchronizes in order to allow, So it's very embarrassing, the phone's gone off, Um, um, in order to allow for a connection between both subjects. So it's inter-brain communication and there's so much and could be bodily communications we saw in the last one, brain communication as we saw as we see in this as we see in this experiment. So one of the things that we've learned if we've learned anything about psychotherapy research over decades and decades, it is that the therapeutic alliance is still the best predictor we've got of good therapeutic outcomes. And this research, and I hope it's been taken forward because it's 2016, and so it's maybe a bit out of date. What they found was that during psychotherapy, patient and therapist tended to spontaneously synchronize their vocal pitch, bodily movements, and even their physiological processes if there was a good therapeutic alliance. So the alliance is grounded in the coupling of the patient and therapist brains. So synchrony helps to establish interbrain coupling, which you see in all kinds of contexts. You see it when you're with your mates and you're having a good time together. You see it in kids you see if you're singing in a choir you see even if you're singing a song at a football match dare I say you know you see it well these it's closeness and cooperation gives rise to the wish to to reach out and care for another people um and actually in these psychotherapy studies this is another study but um they also found heart heart rate synchrony between client therapist was observed as there were moments in moments of meeting. And any of you out there want to do PhDs, I think this is a fascinating subject to do some research on. So these are 14 month old. Uh, um, experiment, I think it's self-explanatory.
2: The experimenter stands across from the infant and music plays over the loudspeakers. The assistant bounces the infant to the beat of the song and the experimenter facing the infant also bounces, either in synchrony with how the baby is bounced, or out of synchrony, for example, at a faster or slower tempo. Subsequently, we measured the infant's helpfulness towards the experimenter. In each trial, the experimenter would accidentally drop the object she needed to complete the task, and the infant was given 30 seconds to respond. (laughs) <laughs> we found that infants who had been bounced in synchrony with the experimenter were significantly more likely to assist with the dropped items and to help early in the trials.
1: Isn't that amazing? So being synchronized with, so, which is, we might link with attunement, made you more likely to help another person afterwards. It's extraordinary, really. So connection, closeness, synchrony gives rise to um, an outward form of social engagement, as Borges would say, and a wish to reach out. So it's all about safeness and connection. So this is a good Christmas message, guys, really, isn't it? So being helpful, you know, reaching out, being open, helping other people, is actually gonna make us feel better as well, but that's not why we do it. Of course, we feel better when we give to charity and we volunteer. Interestingly, money makes us happy, much more so if we give it to other people rather than keep more for ourselves. It also helping others makes us feel healthier. And there's a clear link between how much community volunteer activity and that kind of thing people do and psychological psychological and physical health benefits. In fact, being helpful, like volunteering, it reduces all kinds of psychiatric diseases. We research on that and also reduces mortality rates. Again, it's old research. I'm sure there's more recent research. So the model I've been talking about, really, is a model of human nature, of social and emotional connect development, which assumes an inbuilt human propensity for connection from birth onwards. You know, what we know is the babies from the first moments of life, they're looking for connection, they're reaching out, they're looking for the mother's eyes, they prefer, they've got a choice between the mother's eyes and the breast, they tend to go for the eyes first. They want contact, they want connection. It's what soothes us and makes us feel good. Trevarthan calls this having a companion in meaning making, which I think is a really good metaphor. We all need companions in meaning-making. And Bratton describes infants being born what he calls ultracentric, which was the counter Piaget's idea of the egocentric infant. And Robert Emdy, who died recently, sadly, said um, he described a we-go rather than ego. And what the suggestion is that selfishness buys with cooperativeness and can become exaggerated at times of stress and tension, which might be the case in the world that we currently live in. So Matt Ridley said our minds have been built by selfish genes, but they have been built to be social, trustworthy and cooperative. So selfish versus cooperative genes, we have both. We're capable of shocking cruelty, viciousness, and aggression, as many survivors of abuse know. And, and we can't afford not to face that, you know, stare evil in the eyes. we said, but we're also born primed with an inbuilt capacity for altruism and to fit into a moral and rule-bound social universe. Can't read this, it's sitting behind the camera. So this is a very different view from the Hobbes, Hobbesian social, social world. So here's a little nice little clip of um, birds. (laughs) They'll come into each other's rhythms. For a long time, biologists were puzzled by this behavior. So that's what happens when you spend time with somebody you like, you, you move into each other's rhythms and you synchronize at a bodily, I think probably at a cellular level. Dave, you're wondering how it could be possible. We're so used to choreography giving rise to synchrony. These creatures are not choreographed, they're choreographing themselves.
4: Now all this changes when a predator enters the scene.
1: Message in a way danger gives rise to atomization, separation, and losing connection. Here on the model, you see the predator attacking, the prey move out in random directions, and then the rule of attraction brings them back together again. So there's this constant splitting and reforming. Okay, so. It's been a central theme of what I've been talking about really and um, what we know is that life is absolutely made up of all kinds of different connections. Um, we, know about myce- we know about mycelium networks and fungal networks under the ground, how trees communicate, we know this is a picture of a mimosa on the right, we know that even the mimosa contracts and turns in in the face of danger. Talked about the cell danger response. We know that there's closing down and atomization is danger, and there's opening and reaching out from the world feels when the world feels safe. And we're, I think, in this room probably on the side of safeness, communication, cooperation, and trying to create that kind of better world. So the cell danger response, which is one of the things I started with, get, will arise at, right down at cellular mitochondrial level when there's danger, again, fungus, a virus, like COVID or whatever, and long COVID is often a result of this kind of thing, but it gives rise to danger at cellular level, but also at psychological level and at a social level. We see atomization, individualism, neoliberalism, which in in themselves create things like loneliness and ill health and kills off generosity and kindness. And I just, it's interesting because I, I can see myself in the corner of the screen and I'm noticing that I'm closing my, folding my arms much more than I would normally when I'm giving a talk. And I try to be a bit more open. I think there's something about not having the social connection that makes me more kind of insular, if you like. And it's interesting to think about what insular means. I just looked it up in the dictionary before and, and pasted it in here. with You know, words like closed, inward looking, prejudiced separated, separate, contracted, confined, isolated. That's not the world I want to live in, primarily. So it also has a link with, um, with uh, talking about generosity, somebody's just brought me up a cup of coffee. So I'm gonna just accept it as we talk. Um, So this is, thank you. (laughs) So, This is a quote from a Native American leader whose name I can't pronounce, i never heard it said, Matinaquat. it's clear that the way to heal society of its violence and lack of love is to replace the pyramid of domination with a circle of equality and respect. Actually so beautiful. And above is a little little, um, picture from the work of, um, I think this is Richard Wilkinson actually, but the people like Michael Marmot and Richard Wilkinson have shown so clearly how inequality and poverty give rise to all kinds of social ills, more adversity, less trust, more illness, etc. Again, this is not the world that we want to create. So guys, I've got about two or three slides left, I think, and then we're gonna have questions. So this one, I can't see you, but I'm gonna have to take it on trust that you're gonna be joining in with this um, asynchronous pendulum that becomes a pendulum. brainwaves synchronising, heart waves synchronising and how different the world would feel. Okay, so moving to just about the last slide, I think, this is a quote from somebody called Carol Gilligan, um, who's a great feminist and who's married to somebody who actually done a lot, with, did a lot of research with forensic patients, perpetrators, and if you forgive the word psychoanalysis and change it to psychotherapy or anything kind, g- generally, more than ever, we need psychoanalysis with its method of free association to undo the associations that currently threaten not only our happiness, but also our survival. But we need a psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis, like they be free from its truncated Oedipus story, a psychoanal- psychoanalysis that recognizes trauma, not nature, as a force that turns love incestuous and anger murderous. A psychoanalysis that is at once psychological and political, and encourage us encourages us to take the risk of opting and it is a risk of opting for love and freedom there's another philosopher i really love actually charlie brown finish on that one charlie brown says that we're here put here on earth to make others happy no i can't read this it's got a thing in the way is that why we're here i guess i would better start doing a better job i'd hate to be shipped back so that's the end of my formal talk um here are some contact details and i'm going to send out a pdf with these on so there's a sign up for a newsletter which i'll send out Which will have a blog and a new and a free paper to download on it here's my website um that's my email that's a website that's a twitter occasionally do that here is a link to um a book funnel link, which again should be on there. And if you click on that, you will be able to download a free paper that I wrote for the Child Psychotherapy Journal some years ago um, about altruism and trauma. There's a LinkedIn, which I occasionally do. Here are some of my books, and here's the new one. So this is about um, out this is about narcissism, not altruism, showing you my books. Um, but this is the new one that actually. Only the, as now said, only the Kindle version currently is on pre-order, but the paper version will be on pre-order any day now, I really hope. And I think at that point, I think I will stop sharing when we come into the room. Am I right, now?
0: I agree. Yep, that was a a fantastic presentation. Thank you very much. And yeah, it was one of our most entertaining, I think, we've had so far. (laughs) Um, So great job. So we've had we've had a few questions here. Um, anybody should stop, else? Sh- want... Should
1: I stop sharing, by the way?
0: Yeah, yeah. Feel free to. Um, yeah, we've had we've had quite a few questions in the in the Q and A section. So I'm just going to invite people into the room to ask ask some of these questions. So our first one is going to be from uh, from Paula, I think. So I'm just going to invite Paula in here now. Two seconds.
1: Do you actually see a person?
0: Um, we can allow them to talk, but. <laughs> I'm not sure if we can show the microphone or the okay. show the camera. Let's okay. see. Let's see how this goes.
4: Hi, so, it's Paula here. Can you hear me?
0: Yeah. yeah.
4: Not seeing me maybe. Um, Graham, thank you so much. It really was entertaining, but very heartwarming to hear all that research. Um, my question was at the very start. And I was wondering whether altruism can be um, instinctive because I remember years and years ago, I did a very altruistic act to a stranger when I was then placed in danger, but it felt like a no-brainer and it felt like I didn't actually have a choice. I, I literally just leapt into action. So I wondered if it could be an instinctive
3: thing.
1: Yeah, well, I think it depends on what we, what we mean by instinctive, but I suspect it was with you and I suspect it probably was with that, um, whoever it was that looks like an Algerian man climbing up in that housing estate. But I also worked with people who have instinctively done some pretty nasty things. And so whether it's instinctive in terms of innate or whether it's how our personality is developed because of some things that we've experienced like reasonably good parenting and friendships and that kind of thing. So I wouldn't say it's a biological, I think there's a biological propensity to have that instinctual reaction, but it could get turned off by bad experiences and turned on by good experiences is I suppose the thesis. I'm trying to suggest
4: yes that makes sense
1: thank you thank
0: you thanks Paula Um, okay so next question is from Leone so Leone I'm gonna gonna invite you in now and Paula if you maybe want to um, mute your microphone thanks
3: Hello, Um, I have two questions. Um, Obviously, the uh, the experiments that you had, um, do you think, although the child will have an attachment to the adult that's obviously in the room, if it was behind a screen, do you think the child would make a different um, choice to what it does in the experiment? Which experiment were you referring to? Um, Well, obviously, most of the experiments that had the child... Um, in would have some adult present, Um, so not the person doing the experiment but just the carer.
1: Okay, so there's out, so there are different kinds of experiments. So the altruism experiments, where the toddlers were say picking up something that a bloke had dropped, yes. Um, I think they did have a parent in the room, and I think for. Ethical reasons that probably was necessary, and but I didn't get the impression, and I think they might even have screened this out, to be honest, um, in terms of um, that they were doing it because they wanted approval in a way. In a way, the parents were told to be really still and not give any indication of what what they should, what the kids should do or not. And so there was something again going back to the, was it Paula previously? Is that something instinctive, almost mm-hmm. like they couldn't help themselves but do it? In the other ones, when the babies were choosing between the dolls. The experimenters who brought out the dolls didn't know which was the goodie and the baddie. They hadn't watched the experiments. So um, so they screened out a lot of stuff. Interestingly, the, the Michael Tomasello experiments, the, altruism, the altruistic toddlers, they found something really fascinating which didn't quite fit into the talk. But what they found was that when they gave these kids rewards, and I hope that some health and social services managers who are watching this, and business managers, when they rewarded these kids for being altruistic by giving them, I don't know, a nice toy or a shiny star or something like that, they didn't do it the second or the third time. So it was the act of being altruistic which was rewarding rather than getting an ext- extrinsic reward. So it's intrinsic reward rather than extrinsic reward that was the driver. That's not quite answering your questions, but I don't think, if your question was, were they getting... I mean, the other thing is, if a parent wasn't in the room and they were on their own, they might be too anxious. A bit like what we see in any in the strange situation test, when you're on your own, that might trigger stress, which might then make you less likely to be altruistic. I suppose.
3: Yes. Okay, that does answer the question. Obviously, those thoughts had gone through my mind when obviously I asked it, um, mm. but maybe it'd be interesting to find out what those reactions would be.
1: Yeah. So there's a good little um, doctoral research study for you to get on with.
3: (laughs) Thank you.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Leonie. Okay, so next question then from uh, Charles Gordon-Graham. So, Charles, I'm just going to turn on your microphone here now. You're muted, Charles.
3: sorry oh oh, hi okay i've unmuted sorry um hi thank you really interesting talk really enjoyed it um i've got a question um just wonder if you yeah i mean i put it in the chat but um when earlier you were talking about difference you know Mm -hmm. let's say one you know may show more
1: empathy towards those who are more similar yeah um you know
3: like for example race class i suppose maybe
1: education level whatever
3: i'm also wondering though, looking beyond that to species and the whole question about altruism altruistic attitudes towards other species
0: um, yeah i wonder if you could say something about that
1: well i'm not an expert on that by any means i don't know very i do know that some of the most popular i don't know um, facebook and instagram and posts are of you know tigers cuddling up with other species and you know th- those sorts of things and that are you talking species to species rather than human to other species?
3: Both, actually I'm thinking of both. Mm.
1: Okay but I think we love them because in a way they're unexpected and what we know is that you, you know if, if you're um, that if you're a deer or whatever um, in, an impala in the South African bush probably you shouldn't try too hard to cuddle up to a leopard so it, <laughs> so these things are complicated i think it's interesting i don't know what gives rise to this i think obviously some species like dogs have evolved have evolved to be very 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 attuned to human bodily and emotional states and vice versa that's what they've evolved to, to do mm. so that just comes completely naturally if you like after all mm. that evolution whether that's the case with fox I still get a bit fearful when i see the fox brazen foxes in my street for example so i don't feel that much empathy i i just i don't i don't know actually but i think and i think that it's the same predisposition which comes from the wish to look after and it helps if you've got so you remember when there's a lot of seal culling, people were mm-hmm. absolutely outraged by it because baby seals have these big eyes that are like babies mm-hmm. eyes mm whether they'd feel the same if it was rodents, I don't know. So, so what draws us to feel empathy, but I'm really speculating um, and out of my comfort zone here, but what, 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 what would lead us to show empathy and altruism to one species as opposed to another, I don't know.
3: Thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> thanks, Graham. Thanks, Charles. Okay. Um, next is uh, Amy Arn with her question.
4: Can everyone hear me? Yeah. Hi. Um, thanks for your <clears throat> talk today. It's been really, really interesting. And um I think my question was probably quite long-winded. It just kind of it, the thought occurred to me when you were talking about the um <clears throat> the train track dilemma and you're talking about how um, you know, obviously, if if you were actually being asked, you know, to push someone, to basically kill someone, to save more people, if you were, if you had empathy, that would be a very difficult decision to make. And as you were saying, you know, for someone to make that to make that decision very quickly and not really think about it, they might have to be psychopathic or. Yeah. And as I, it just popped into my head that, you know, I'm wondering if there might be other factors that could influence something like that as well. If there were any studies on maybe other individual differences, personality traits obviously psychopathy comes in tip if there are any other kind of individual differences that can affect decision making and with those
1: kind and of interesting. scenarios just like, before i tr- attempt in an unwieldy way to answer it comes the way to answer it, what do you have any speculations about personality traits that might
4: uh i, I mean i'd assume if you're highly neurotic you're probably going to just going back and forth hesitating getting very anxious and you yeah. probably would struggle to make any kind of prompt decision whereas if you're not so neurotic you'd probably be able to think it through in a more calmer way so that would probably influence how much how quickly you react and all if you know if i don't know i'm you know, trying to think
1: what other very interesting <laughs> it's I really don't know. Again, it's another fantastic study to do. But um, so for example, some other guys who've researched things like let me tell you two other experiments that I didn't get to. One was again, it was with so it's one so a kind of classic example. You're on a boat, there's 120 people on the boat, the boat smashes against the against the rocks, smashes to the smithereens. There's one lifeboat, you're the captain, the lifeboat can only take 20 people, safely, 50 people cram onto it, what are you going to do? Are you going to get rid of 30 people or are you going to leave them there? Now, when you ask most of us, it, we think about it for three or four minutes, debate either way, it's really excruciating decisions. We could come down on one side or the other. If you ask a psychopath, psychopath it's a no-brainer. Get them off, you know, and they might be right, but it's so. but they don't have the emotional dilemmas that most of us do. So whether it's good to be neurotic in certain circumstances, whether it's good to be a psych, you know, I you know, to be quite honest, if I had an un if I had an undetonated bomb outside my front door, I prefer a psychopath who's very good at it to do it than somebody who's very neurotic and anxious. So there are times when we need those traits. Um, Antonio Damasio did a brilliant experiment, something he called the Iowa Gambling Experiment, where he um, got um, two pack. Gave people this game which had set steps in it, and then four packs of cards. Two cards were ordinary packs of cards, and two cards were stacked so that they would pay out loads of money to begin with and scam the game. And then you'd lose loads of money. If you're still with me, and then if I can't see you, but you have to I take it. And then so, and then what happened was the people, after a little while, they consciously they thought all the packs were the same, but when they reached for the packs which were stacked to pay and then lose loads of money. If they measured their heart rate or their skin, con- their galvanic skin conductance, in other words, sweating, as they reached out towards the packs that were paying out loads of money and then losing loads of money, their heart rates went up and their skin conductance, when galvanic skin response went up as well. So their body knew there was a problem here. Now, in Damasio's experiments, two groups of people didn't have that response. If I could see you, I would ask, um what you thought but actually in Damasio's research one group were people who had organic damage to their prefrontal cortex you know they might be you know, had, a, had a head injury and the other group were psychopaths who, who had less link between subcortical areas like the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex and my my speculation would be that if you suffer more trauma similarly you might be more um, you might, might be less able to self-regulate. And I'm not quite answering your question, Amy, but I think it's, um, it's complicated. And at what point... So one of the classic moral dilemmas was some... I think it was a film about it and a book about it called Sophie's Choice. So you're hiding from the Nazis or someone, and you're in a basement flat, and there's 12 people in the flat, and... Or 12 people in the basement. You know that if the Nazis find you, they'll kill you all and you've got a baby, your baby, and your baby starts to cry. And you know that if the baby continues to cry, you'll be found and everybody will be killed. Do you strangle or kill your own baby? I bet nobody here would say yes, but it's a kind of a classic excruciating moral moral dilemma. What kind of personality would kill their own baby to save 12? Which of us could do it? I don't know. So these complicated issues really, Thanks for answering that.
4: I think. Yeah, I think it's just in my head I sort of thought it didn't sound in my head, it, it felt very simple to say, Oh, psychopaths would do this and others wouldn't. When I guess I, I know of more than one person who I don't consider psychopaths who would probably quite easily say, Obviously, I would do that. <laughs> Maybe they're more psychopathic than they think, but <laughs> they're just very unpsychopathic more, in other
1: ways. <laughs> if you believe in the left right hemisphere thing, it might be they're more left hemisphere dominant, they're more logical, more cognitive, less emotionally in touch for other yeah, reasons. They're psychopaths to be less emotionally in touch. So, yeah, sure.
0: Thank you, Yumi, and thanks for that horrible um, moral dilemma that you've just so given us I've ruined people's
1: <laughs> um,
0: Okay, next one is from uh, Penny, Penny Stewart. So, Stewart, or Penny, I'm just going to invite you into the room now.
1: Hi, Penny, a familiar name. You're muted.
0: Henny, are you are you there? Um, we might go to the next one then. Uh, in that case, uh, we've got a couple here from Danny. So, Danny, I'm just going to invite you in now.
1: By the way, Brits, I just seen a brilliant answer in the chat, the only chat. If you made the baby unconscious, that that I think that's cheating, but it's a good answer.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, okay, Danny.
3: Hello. Um... Okay, well, I have had a couple of questions. And I um, mean, you know, oh, firstly, yeah, I was really, I've really enjoyed the talk and especially the comment on the bad acting. Uh, yeah, so Yeah. Um, yeah, I wanted to actually, if I could just comment on it, I found it a really interesting question that Charles asked about other species, because obviously yeah. it would be an outgroup and all sorts of implications, but what I've noticed both for, for being kind between species and generally being kind and altruistic, after having studied this a, a lot, is that I think it's really key that basic needs are met, and if you have the sort of prosperous, safe society like we have, but also what animals have in captivity, they can actually really be tolerant and kind to other species. But as soon as their basic needs kick in, say they didn't have anything to eat, you know, the the cheetah would quickly eat the gazelle, uh, yeah. presumably. So it, it it needs a certain environment which isn't always or is rarely rarely exists in nature. But to, to be cheeky and say all this. Um, I'm just going to come to my questions. I was interested in gender biases in yeah. altruistic behavior because you referred your briefly to this when talking about the mirroring experiments. <laughs> and that's quite a thorny big question. And the other one was uh, I was I'm very interested in the genetic differences in oxytocin receptors. So mm-hmm. if you don't have time to answer both, just pick one. Okay. Please
1: scream. Um, I'm very tempted to shirk both of them because they're both. So um, first of all, I don't know enough about ox- the oxytocin receptors other than ob- that it looks like females have most more, but it might well. But there might well be cultural differences. So it might well be in some cultures or some some biological females or um, um might have more oxytocin receptors than others. It might be linked with nurturing. But I, my guess is you know so every. One of the great things about Sarah Bluffer-Hurdy's ideas about us being a, a, a cooperative breeding species is that every one of us, including males, have got the capacity to care for infants, including strange infants, and parts of the brain light up which are involved in reward when you see a strange, strange baby, not just our own baby. And they don't light up when you see a strange adult. And that the more contact you have with an infant, and the more, if you're not, got too much trauma and stress in your own background then actually the more you develop these capacities to parent and care my guess would be that in that process more oxytocin receptors would develop and a whole range of different neurochemical and uh, nervous system um, and brain systems would be firing up in such a way that it wouldn't mean that males couldn't do it pretty similar, you know, obviously some things that males can't do, like that's a lot of oxytocin gets released in breastfeeding. Unless you have hormone treatment, you're never gonna be able to do that to bloke. But nonetheless, I, 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 I suppose what I'm saying, I'm standing on the fence, but saying, let's not assume that males biologically can't care as much as females. And a lot of it is culture, and a lot of it is, in fact, Herdy would suggest a lot of it is just default. You know, I happen to be breastfeeding, so I'm the one who's doing the caring, and then I get, and, it, it, it you just go down this pathway. I'm um, not sure if that's really answered the question, so there is an idea that you know, if males have more testosterone, testosterone seems to work against oxytocin and it, it's linked with more aggression and less kindness and caring and of course biological fathers who are living with their pregnant partners, at the time of by birth they have lower testosterone than they did before the pregnancy, so there are all these complex biological systems and I don't think are set in stone. You know, you develop more testosterone So men release more te- When Obama won the election, was it Obama? Anyway, we're, we're, if, if your president, presidential candidate won the election, you'll have a higher testosterone than if you supported the losing candidate. So these are really complicated things. It's not, they're yeah. not just written in stone. Um, what was the other question?
3: Well, uh, I like how you've actually answered both questions in one. Oh, good, okay? you know, because you've referred no to genetics and oxytocin <laughs> and gender. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm particularly interested because I I totally agree that you can really if. Uh, ev- change that, that we influence each other and through experiences like child rearing or maybe being a therapist or counselor which I am that I, I definitely feel I've become more empathic and because and, I actually have the quite extreme combination of having both of the double gene that uh, uh, lessens your oxytocin response so I'm actually, you know, you. I don't know if you know much about this, but I'm particularly interested because it affects me. So I am technically one of those not so empathic people, but I have through a personal relationship and my work become more empathic which is but i have noticed this effect of the oxytocin on my social life definitely so it's just really fascinating you know but i yeah i sort of would agree that but and also i think you we have have to remember the individual differences i think some males are very empathic and other males are not but so we're obviously talking about an average there when we talk about gender differences
1: thanks danny really appreciate that and i think you're right we are talking about an average but also the whole the, the day in part is about nature and nurture and that's exactly what you're asking about and there are not very very clear answers but i would err on the side of nurture being underrated in our current culture mm.
3: yeah yeah
0: <laughs> thanks very much danny thank you thanks,
3: thank thanks you Graham, good. as well
0: um so the next one is from uh alistair so alistair i'm just going to invite you in now
3: Okay, hello.
1: Hi. Hi, I've really got uh, maybe two questions if there's time, but uh, first of all, you're probably aware of the work on communicative musicality by Trawarthan and yeah. others. Uh, given your own name, do you have thoughts about the role of music in our connectedness? Um, yes, um, I was so ashamed of my name when I was a kid, I couldn't do anything musical and I just hid in the corner all the time. But there's something about the musicality of um, so actually any good communication has got musicality in it, hasn't it? Good yes. mother-infant, father-infant in communication. They call it ease these days. They used to call it mother Um It's got prosody, it's got rhythm, it's got life. It's that that people who we worry about are often very shut down. They have less musicality in their be in their very beings, less rhythm in their beings. So absolutely, and what we know is that people singing choirs together, actually they have heightened they have oxytocin, they have lower cortisol, their brains synchronised, a whole range of different extraordinary things. I'm a great fan of music and music therapy and all of those things, yeah. Okay, uh, thanks. I mean, that obviously could be developed further. My, yeah. Just on, on the last subject, thinking of, of nature versus nurture, uh, I was going to ask the question, is altruism instinctive or learned? Or perhaps the instinct is triggered and reinforced by attachment and attunement? Such a big question, isn't it? So, um, I think we're born with a natural predisposition for, but it, that can get closed down by stress, tension, anxiety, trauma, etc. I also think that we have to be helped to develop the capacity to manage emotional triggers. So, there was a classic study going back to the, was it Danny who asked about gender? Somebody asked about gender. Um, no, um, no. Um, there's a classic study years ago where they put boys and girls in a room, separately in a room with a crime doll, I think it was. And the girls um, were all empathically kind to the, the dolls, and the boys picked them up and chucked them out of the room and kicked them and things like that. Now, again, I don't think this was biological. I think it's already cultural. The, the, these weren't that young. They were probably early primary school age. or. Late toddler, uh, but, but what was interesting was when they measured the heart rates of the boys and their, you know, their kind of physiological reactions, they were much higher. In other words, they were much more triggered than the girls. So because they couldn't bear and stand the emotional distress of being in the presence of other people's distress, they reacted aggressively and unempathically. So our job is, in a way, to try to help people manage the emotional distress, be with it in themselves and in in order for them to be with it in other people, which is kind of 101 of counselling and mindfulness and all of these things. Yes, uh, thanks. Um, Yeah, I I was thinking about even mimetic theory, to to what extent uh, we're um, governed even unconsciously by um, the Modeling of others uh, and, and our disposition to copy others. Okay, so just really, really quickly, because I know we're running out of time, and I'm speaking faster, faster, faster. But it's a um, mimesis. is a kind of it's a superficial mimicking, if you like, often. But it's also how we can kind of um, learn how to be like other people. It's a, and it's absolutely central part of learning for kids. Uh, learning to identify with the adults whatever kind of adults they're with the thing is mimesis is linked with cooperation and connection and if i'm scared i stop the process of mimesis and i turn in on myself and i contract and it's the atomization Mm. so safeness must precede that i think
0: okay um
1: thank you Thank, thank you very you.
0: much, Alistair. Thank you, everybody, for your questions as well. And thank you so much, Graham, for a brilliant presentation. And just your, your insights today have been, have been really, really helpful. So, so before, before you go, is there anywhere you'd um, like to send people online, any sort of uh, requests of the audience? What, what's your, any sort of final words? Um, have a
1: really good relaxing Christmas give yourself some kindness and, and nice times and that will allow us all to be nicer and kinder to other people, which will make us feel healthier and better and happier. Um, that probably wasn't what you're asking now, but um, I've, in fact, I've just finished writing a blog this morning, which is very sad, having already written a blog and been to the Heath before I even came here about, about the process of, of closing down and shutting down and the difference between hibernating in winter as a healthy thing or shutting down as a defensive thing. Which which will be on on my website, but um, so were you asking if I should send anything out, or what were you? Sorry, I think.
0: just anywhere you'd like people to go online, or any sort of yeah, a bit of advice at the end. And I yes, suppose you've already given a bit of, bit of advice for Christmas. So anything anything else?
1: Not really. Just follow your. Just no, not really. Keep breathing, guys. And um, I will um, have a look at the links that I send out, if that's all right. And um, other than that, enjoy the rest of the day. And I'm very impressed with you doing this the Sunday before Christmas, just about. So um, good for you. Okay, thanks very much, now for being a great host. And thank you, everybody.
0: No worries. Thank you very much, Graeme. Everybody else, we're back at one o'clock with, for, from our, our, with our next talk from Dr. Hannah Critchlow. Um, now, that's going to be on Demio, not on Zoom. So you're going to receive a join link about 15 minutes before um so we'll we'll do that one on demo so i'll see you guys then have a great lunch and graham thanks again see you guys soon
2: bye